This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This week, we're going to talk about a very difficult topic. Bullying. We're going to speak with a researcher who has been exploring the bully-victim relationship and how both the causes and the outcomes are far more complex than you think. And in our SAS class, we're going to learn how using positive messages can help prevent at-risk children from being victims of harm, both from others and themselves. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and if you're being affected by bullying, know that I'm here for you. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. Let's face it. Bullying exists. We can't deny it, and we certainly cannot afford to ignore it. We've learned over the years that bullying can have an effect not just on the person being bullied, but also the perpetrator. And these effects may appear to be short-lived, but in reality, they have a lasting impact, and they even alter lives. Research has also revealed that bullying is a cultural part of society. I know we don't want it to exist, but it does. Much like racism, sexism, homophobia, there are ways we can achieve the goal of removing this from society. But first, we need to understand the bully culture, why it exists, and how it is sustained. Our first guest has been studying this in depth. Her name is Melissa Holt, and she is an associate professor and the department chair for counseling psychology and applied human development at Boston University's Wheelock College of Education and Human Development. How prevalent is bullying in the school environment? We know that about 30% of youth are involved in bullying in the school environment. And among those youth, we can think about three primary groups. So we can think about bullies who primarily perpetrate aggression, victims who are primarily victimized, and then there's another really important smaller group called bully victims. And those are youth who both engage in aggression at high levels and also victimized at high levels. I should note that there's been some recent research that shows slight declines in school-based bullying across the world, including in the U.S. and Canada, but those declines are fairly small. And then outside of school bullying, people often ask about cyberbullying. So rates have been a little bit more varied depending on how it's measured, but those range from about 20 to 40% for kids. That's so high. It is indeed uh, very high. And again, only some slight declines have been seen. And I think just to contextualize it a little bit more, when we think about in-person bullying, that 30%, Those are kids who are are involved pretty regularly. So if we think about kids who experience lower levels of peer victimization uh, or are aggressing against their peers, those numbers would be higher. Your research focuses on bullying, but it's more than just an aggression. It seems to do with, I don't know, a social factor, the individual and the community. Just to pick up on that first point you made, which was a good one, It is more than simple aggression. So we think about bullying as this subtype of aggression that has some key characteristics. So we know that it's unwanted and we know that it's repeated. 
But there's also that power imbalance that's inherent in the interaction, and that pulls in the social piece that you were mentioning. So a lot of what we've done in our work, and I co-lead a research team with Jen Green here at the U, is think about the different um, contributors to bullying at multiple levels of the social ecology. So when we think about bullying, we think about individual factors and then peers, families, schools, communities, and so forth. And we know that at each level of the social ecology, there are factors that can either increase or reduce the likelihood of bullying involvement. What about the people who believe that bullying is just a reflection of kids being kids and that bullies will eventually grow up and lose that aggression while victims will get over it and become successful themselves? Absolutely. That's something that I think people are um, saying a little bit less frequently, but definitely comes up with people saying it's just kids being kids. It doesn't matter. However, a great body of research has shown that it really does matter to kids and not just when it's occurring, but also in the long term. So we think about kids who are victims. Um, They may experience lower school engagement. They may have reduced grades. They'll experience psychological distress, really a host of concerns um, that are related to the bullying involvement. And actually over time into adulthood, we know that victims who experience regular victimization in childhood are also more likely to experience things like psychological distress. So really the effects for some kids don't go away in adulthood. And on the same hand, for kids who are involved in bullying, um, we can see challenges that can persist into adulthood for a small body of those um, individuals. So there's some research that shows, for example, that kids who are frequent bullies of others are more likely to have criminal involvement in adulthood. And so for those who are saying bullying is just kids being kids, we really know that it has some profound effects sort of at the time it's happening and also in the long term. And what about the codependence? And you even just mentioned it. There's a bully victim community that's going on there. Does that continue on past schooling as well? That's a great question. I think some of what we've looked at is how these kind of behaviors may change developmentally. So, for example, if we think about bullying and when it peaks, it peaks in middle school and then starts to decline in high school. But I think that can take on other forms of aggression. So, for example, there's some work that talks about whether those who engage in bullying perpetration are then more likely to engage in dating aggression and so forth. And certainly, um, although it's not my area of research, we hear about things like workplace aggression and workplace bullying, or maybe some of those behaviors are continuing in a different context but have some similar themes. Is there a chance that we can identify the warning signs in elementary school so that we can avoid that peak, as you said, that occurs in middle school? I think both with risk factors and protective factors, it's it's very varied by child, but we can think of some common signs that may suggest a youth is engaging in bullying. So we can think about, for example, kids who tend to be more aggressive, who may be likely to blame others for their problems, Um, to have aggressive friends, and to get into fights frequently. These could be kids who are engaging in bullying. Similarly, if you're a parent and your child comes home with unexplained extra money or belongings they didn't have before, that could be an indicator that they're engaging in bullying. What would you say to the idea that maybe we can prevent bullying by focusing on children at that young age so that they don't eventually turn into bullies later on in life? I think we do know that school-based bullying prevention programs can work, particularly very comprehensive ones. Um, So comprehensive programs would involve all school staff members, students, try to integrate families, and also not be one-time programs, so really being integrated over time into the school culture. 
We do know from research that these programs can have positive effects, although unfortunately we're not quite moving the needle as much as we might like in terms of reducing bullying prevalence. But I think that these messages need to get to kids early on and be continued throughout school. Um, And at the same time, I think it's challenging because, like I mentioned earlier, from the social ecological context, they're getting one set of messages at school, but they could get different messages in their families, in their communities, or in society more broadly that also will have an influence on their behaviors. And that's another aspect of bullying I do want to explore. Family communities, they do play a role. As we've all heard, it takes a village. How is it that a village can somehow lead to the development of a bully? I think for any individual child, that constellation of factors in the social ecology could look different, um, you know, ranging from their own individual characteristics to their peers, to families and communities and so forth. Um, I will say, though, we know some characteristics in families are related to increased involvement in bullying, whether as a bully, a victim, or a bully victim. So we know, for example, that um, there are higher rates of uh, reported child abuse among kids who are bullies. Does that mean that all bullies um, have experienced child abuse? Absolutely not. But we do know that among kids who report more bullying behaviors, they're also more likely to report um, maltreatment in the home. And we know the same occurs for those who are victimized. So in those cases, for example, in families more broadly, we may say that they're in environments that are condoning violence. And maybe for some kids, that means they themselves start to engage in aggression. When we think about um, the community more broadly and even the school community, those characteristics matter a lot. So classrooms that don't condone violence will have lower rates of bullying. So with all of these factors involved, do you think that bullying can be prevented? I think it can be. I think it at least can be reduced. Um, even if students are part of these broader social ecological contexts, students spend a lot of time at school. So if you can have schools with really good school-based prevention programs, that also have cultures that support treating one another well and not condoning violence, I think that could have the potential to significantly affect how children act, even if we can't necessarily make as many changes in the other context outside of school. I'm sure that you've heard about the impact of bullying. Most likely, you've probably seen it on the news, tied to extreme consequences. Mass murders, Suicides. It seems that every time a child or young adult willingly harms others or themselves, bullying at one point or another played a role. Usually these people are the victims, although sometimes the bully also ends up being the person responsible for the crime. While our efforts to control and eliminate bullying continue, we need to be able to find out how we can help those who are and have been impacted. We may be able to identify warning signs, not just for extreme behavior, but also actions that may harm that person's success for the future. And then we can help. Melissa Holt has looked at what happens to victims and how the effects of bullying can lead to troubling activities. But there is one point she wants everyone to realize. As much as we would like to say that bullying actually causes these tragic events, there is no causal link whatsoever. It's far more complex, and as you're about to hear, troubling. Take us through the psychology of being a victim of bullying. It can understandably feel very demoralizing for youth, and some youth will internalize what's being said and done to them. 
And in turn, some of those youth may then start feeling more anxious or depressed or having lower self-esteem, particularly if they feel like they're one of the only people being targeted and it's being repeated. They may somehow blame themselves for what's being done. Is there a way that we may be able to predict how a victim is going to act later in life when it's found out that they have been a victim of bullying? That's a complicated question. I don't think we would know for sure if they would experience any long-term effects. And I think that whether or not they would experience effects would depend on the intervention in the moment. So if someone found out that a child was being victimized and really supported them and believed them and helped them um, change what was going on, they would be at lower risk for experiencing long-term effects. So it's better to help them in the present while they're being victimized as opposed to trying to find ways to be able to treat them later on. Absolutely. And it may be when you find out in the present time that they're being victimized, they still could use additional supports to help them deal with what happened. But it'd be better to address it in that moment to reduce the likelihood of longer term effects. And we hear all the time about people bringing up bullying issues at schools and nothing getting done. Do you think it's time that we start putting in regulations, legislations, to be able to be sure that we are taking care of victims as they are being bullied so that we don't have to worry about it down the road? Absolutely. I think that's definitely the case. I know most about the laws in the United States. And in the U.S., all the states currently have anti-bullying legislation, but the details really vary by state. Um, The little bit I know about Canada, there's also legislation and policies in each province, but those vary as well. So, for example, in the United States, some of the legislations in states say that schools must implement bullying prevention programs, whereas others do not. The challenge there is, of course, whether schools then have the capacity to be implementing the programs or are, in fact, implementing programs. But I think that legislation um, is powerful to the extent that it tells kids that it matters and then hopefully that the changes and the ramifications indicated in the legislation actually occur. But I think it does say to kids, you know, we take this seriously. We have laws in place to make sure this doesn't happen and to support you if you experience bullying. What brought this about? We didn't really worry about it like we talked about earlier. It was just kids being kids. How come it changed Mm -hmm. so much that we can now focus on laws to help protect and take care of victims? Mostly from the perspective of in the U.S., I think a big turning point was in Columbine when people started to realize that this really could have some potential significant effects on kids because there had been media saying that the perpetrators involved had been involved in bullying. And that sort of spurred more people to say this isn't just kids being kids. There could be really serious effects. And in turn, that started slowly um, moving states to have legislation. I think as well in the U.S. and, and in multiple other countries, media focusing stories on kids who have committed suicide that are linked to bullying has sort of made people more aware of potential consequences. Now, I would say those media reports are more complicated. We certainly wouldn't say that bullying causes suicide. There's multiple contributing factors to suicidal ideation and attempts. However, we do know from a research standpoint that being involved in bullying is linked to a greater likelihood of considering or attempting suicide. And I think that highlights the importance and the seriousness to people as well. You brought up something that I do want to ask you about. It's a little bit more serious. It's suicide ideation. It's not just Mm -hmm. bullying that can lead to that. What else possibly can lead a child to start heading in that direction, whether it's bullying or some other influence? 
certainly having a mental health history of psychological distress may contribute to that, as well as a whole host of, of other issues that a child could be facing. Certainly bullying could be one of them, but I think it is, again, challenging with media reports. On the one hand, it brings awareness to potential effects of bullying, and on the other hand, I think we need to be careful to sort of make that causal link. The other important piece I always like to share about suicide as it relates to bullying is that some of the work I have done with collaborators looked at the relationship between bullying involvement and suicide, not just for targets of bullying, but also for bullies and those in that bully victim group, so the kids who both perpetrate and are victimized. And actually, the students who are at greatest risk or have the, the greatest association between their experience and suicidal thoughts and behaviors are the bully victim group. So the kids who both are aggressive and are victimized. But surprisingly to some people, kids who are aggressors and don't have a victimization profile also are at greater likelihood of considering and attempting suicide than students who don't have any involvement in bullying. So it's always something I really like to point out that any kind of involvement in bullying has this relationship, again, not causal, but a relationship with suicidal thoughts and behaviors. It's SAS class time, and today we're going to look at how we might be able to prevent and also deal with the negative factors that lead to and arise from bullying. It's a practice known as positive youth development, and our guest teacher has used this to improve not only children's individual lives, but also communities. Her name is Lisa Wexler, and she's a professor of social work at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. What is positive youth development? Positive youth development is really focused on what it is that helps kids grow up and be well. And so it is everything to do with, you know, they talk about internal and external factors. So internal factors would be sort of outlook and self-esteem, families that we come from, peer groups, those kinds of things, and then cultural resources. So it can be a lot of different kinds of things, but When we think about positive youth development, it's all of those things that makes life worth living and that helps young people grow into healthy adults. So if we think about both the pathway from being a, you know, a a young child into adulthood, there's many different phases of development, many different kinds of resources that are more valuable at different times. So we try and understand what those are and how they support young people's development. And then we try and really think about not only that person, but the environments that create the opportunities for that person's growth. Now, we're not talking about getting a participation trophy for being part of a track meet. We're talking about something that's much more ingrained into the individual as a part of a community. Yes, but I think, I mean, that might be one example. I actually, I think you're saying that in a sort of a sarcastic way, but I do think that trying to create opportunities for young people to be acknowledged, to feel success and failure, and to know that they can actually get through it, so that you're building resources, you're building experiences, and you're building a way of understanding yourself in the world as you go through these kinds of things. So a trophy, if it's not earned, which I think you were suggesting, maybe is teaching that young person that you don't have to earn what you get, but you could be celebrated anyway, right? Whereas it might be a more valuable thing to not get the trophy, but to work really hard and get it the next time, right? So I think in in thinking about how context shapes how we feel about ourselves, how we think about our identity in the world, how we think about our place and the work that we do and the roles that we live in, I think young people have many different opportunities 
to practice who they want to be. And they get to learn about themselves by trying new things. And the communities that they grow up in can create opportunities for them to try new things, build relationships that are meaningful, where feedback is both accepted and moved through, those kinds of things. So both difficult circumstances um, that young people find resources to get through are just as important as having opportunities to be celebrated for a job well done. Is this something that we can do in early education, get them started very young so that they're developing in a positive way throughout their scholastic tenure? That's a really common way that we think about it, just because all youth are sort of, well, almost all youth are go through that process. But there's so many other ways, too, even in, in the green spaces that we create around us, you know, in places that are safe for young people to, to play in, or even the norms that allow adults to sort of weigh in when a young person is not doing the right thing in a public place, right? So there's so many different ways that we can think about it. Absolutely, schools are typically targeted for a lot of positive youth development work, but communities and families and, you know, basically all of us have a role to play. Bullying and the bully victim community really starts to peak around middle school. And I'm wondering if we can use positive youth development early on as a silent means for prevention. It's two sides of the same coin, really. I mean, bullying is being linked to a, often to power, right? And to people's relationship with that and how do you get it and how do you sort of maintain it? And so particularly with bullying and when we think about school context or we think about social media, the most effective ways of trying to stop that are really much more focused on bystander activity and action and response than it is focused on those two particular people that are involved in that engagement. So if we think about how do you create contexts where bullying is not acceptable, that's a really valuable question. And we should all be thinking about that rather than thinking about how do we find that bully and stop that bully? How do we all participate in creating sort of the social environment that doesn't accept that as a reasonable way to go forward. So the idea of it takes a village really does apply without having to focus solely on bullying and victimization. Exactly. There's so much about social context and social norms and what we allow as bystanders to take place in front of us or near us or even implicitly without calling it out. And so I I think we're seeing that in a lot of different parts of society where people are no longer willing to accept unfair conditions in a lot of different ways. So Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement, a lot of things that are happening right now are sort of utilizing that bystander, we will not accept this anymore, and let's start to make changes today. You developed a positive youth development kit known as a HOPE kit for children in Alaska. Yeah, so I'm going to sort of take that and make the question a little bit larger to be more reflective of the work that's been done since then, because I think that was maybe eight years ago or something. And we've sort of taken that same idea and we've brought it into the community in a more focused way. So the Hope Kit was an idea that actually wasn't developed by me. We just utilized it in Alaska Native Villages, where we tried to get young people, gave them an opportunity to really think about all of the relationships and the cultural strengths and We didn't tell them what to focus on, but we gave them an opportunity to really design their own stories and to share it with people that were important in their lives. And so um, we ended up thinking about that as like a hope kit, which was an intervention that 
was developed somewhere in the lower 48 um, that was really focusing on how do you work with suicidal patients, young people specifically, and get them to really think about what's good in their lives so that they allow themselves to get through those really hard times. The Hope Kit idea was if you can collect things, artifacts that symbolized the really good parts of your life and you put them in a particular spot, then when things got hard, you could bring them out and you could remember all of those really positive things. Um, and that has been has shown some efficacy as far as reducing suicidality and increasing help seeking. So we sort of took that idea and we brought it community wide. We worked in schools to get young people to think about their lives and to create digital stories and then to share those digital stories with people that were important to them. The vast majority of young people in Northwest Alaska really focused in on the relationships that were important to them and highlighted the things that were important to them as far as their culture goes, as far as being on the land, taking care of younger siblings, those kinds of things. While we're developing youth in a positive way, we might be able to find warning signs simply because they're not necessarily deviating, but the way that they're seeing the world and their, their place in a community might help us to be able to identify people that we can focus on a little bit more so that we don't have people, as we like to say, falling through the cracks. That's a great idea. And, you know, it's, it's also, even by asking people to focus on different aspects of their life. So, um, you know, asking them to really think about what they care about gives them an opportunity to find that beauty. And, and in the process of finding it, they're incorporating that into who they are and who they want to be. So even just by, by sort of shifting a little bit and asking people to think about what's good or what do you want the world to be or how, how can you be a part of a better world, just by shifting it a little bit, and this goes way back to when you were asking me about positive youth development, um, coming from this long line of positive psychology, if you can get people to really focus in on what's right, what's right seems to happen more because they know, how, they know what they're looking for. They know how to create it just by virtue of asking. And so I'm not saying it's a magical way forward, but certainly in so much of the research that I've been doing with and in communities mostly rural communities and mostly indigenous communities have really focused on how can we focus on what's right and how can we give kids more ideas about what can be right in their lives. You know, a three-year-old is going to need something different from a 16-year-old. And the ways in which we support that, the ways in which we supervise that, the ways in which we fund that needs to look really different for different groups of people and for different kinds of contexts. I think really thinking about that carefully so that we can strategically utilize our resources to do that for each child is important. Well, that's it for this week's SASCast. I hope it has helped you to understand bullying a little bit more and that we all need to work together to end it. If you're involved in bullying in any way, you can find more information at bullyingcanada.ca and prevnet.ca. And if you are in distress or know someone who is, in Canada, you can text 686868 anytime to talk with a trained crisis responder. We'll have the links to these sites in the show notes. For Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. 
We do want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support is overwhelming. And we want to show that gratitude by taking your questions and answering them on the show as themes. We like to have fun, but we know that serious topics do need to be covered. Send me a tweet at J.A. Tetro or an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. And that's where you can find those show notes for more information about what you heard today and the links to our guests, as well as the sites to learn more about bullying. Producer and editing whiz. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week. And as always, make sure to show them some sass. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.